Hello, and welcome to Decent Jobs on a Living Planet, an environmental podcast where we talk to people, from experts to activists, about just transition and what it means from a Scottish perspective. The term just transition originates from trade unions. So what does it mean? We know that fossil fuels are fueling the climate crisis and we need to move away from them. However, the fossil fuel industry is a major player in Scottish and UK society and economy. There are 30,000 people directly employed in the UK offshore oil industry and a further 70,000 in domestic supply chains and thousands more living in communities heavily reliant on the fossil fuel industry. So how do we make a transition away from fossil fuels in a way that is just for workers, communities and the planet? Okay, so hello. We are welcoming back today Ryan Morrison, Just Transition campaigner for Friends of the Earth, who joined the podcast for its very first episode. There, we talked about the nature of his work with Friends of the Earth, what Just Transition means and why it's important, the importance of international and trade union solidarity, and last year's BIFAB scandal, which exposed how far both Scottish and UK governments are failing their commitments to a just transition and providing for the Scottish workforce. Today, we're going to talk about the recent report Offshore, published in collaboration by Friends of the Earth, Platform and Greenpeace in October 2020, which surveyed frontline oil and gas workers who operate the offshore rigs on the UK continental shelf. This report is hugely progressive when it comes to talking about just transition. It's the first report of its kind in the UK where any public bodies have approached frontline oil and gas workers to survey their ideas around just transition, policy changes they would like to see, the state of the oil industry itself, and their views on government actions so far. Their insights and responses are illuminating, to say the least. So thanks for joining us today, Ryan. Yeah, thanks, Ian. Um, it's great to be back in talking. I've loved listening to all the episodes since I was first on. Yeah, we've covered some ground since then. Yeah, it's, uh, it's coming to maturity. Um, so I just thought before we get into the report, um, I wondered if you could give us a, just a brief historical outline, if that's possible, of the North Sea and the UK continental shelf, just to say who the major players are and how many Scottish workers were employed there and are now. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I can talk a bit about that and, and the, the way things have changed, I think. Um, you're sort of looking at the 1960s and 70s, really, when things really kick off in the North Sea. Um, sort of first drop of oil coming on shore on 18th of July, 1975. Um, and then a really rapid progression, like a really rapid increase in the scale of North Sea oil and gas. Um, around 17 years from that date to when the UK becomes the fifth largest oil and gas producer which is a pretty remarkable um, claim in such a short period of time. And that, 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 at that time, that's largely driven by um, investment by the government and the sort of strategic framework being set up that can make that possible. Um, one of the big things that's changed over that time really is, is in exactly who operates in the North Sea and what began as your, your traditional oil majors, um, BP and Shell, these huge companies, some of the richest on earth really, 
has has changed over time to uh, sort of private equity backed companies, uh, mm. state owned operations like the China National Petroleum Corporation, um, and and just smaller operators like Enios that don't have such a traditional base and extraction in the, the in the infrastructure. And I think particularly when you look at the private equity backed firms, you see a bit of why that change is happening and. What you've got in the North Sea is quite a mature basin. A lot of the larger reserves and the easier to access reserves have been exploited. Yeah. And so oftentimes what's happening now is you'll see a private equity backed firm um, buying up a site that has previously had an operator and they'll, they'll be going in to get that last remaining uh, profitable uh-huh. margin. They'll be pulling that out essentially with some uh, fairly large backing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, as that's changed, and the other thing to think about there as well, really, is particularly in the context of BP, is what what, what was state-owned or majority state-owned, at least large, then moving into becoming kind of more and more isolated and difficult to pin down companies. So even when it's the oil majors, I'm not saying there was any sort of closeness between uh, the people who would use the oil and gas and the people who were uh-huh. taking it out the ground. But you, you could identify who that was. The, the nature of it now is it's just much more diverse, much more um, smaller players, more of them. Um, and that makes it harder to keep an eye on what's going on, essentially, or to pin any sort of responsibility. And I think that's, that's something that's a common trend through the North Sea is the industry largely has operated out of the public eye, apart from the instances where it literally cannot be ignored when you look at Piper Alpha disaster, yeah, um, when so many people lost their life, like those sort of instances don't stay offshore. You know, people onshore hear about them, and um, it's just an interesting dynamic. The offshore industry has really been able to shape the way the environment works yeah. for them and what the sort of political context is because they can operate so far away from everyone, and uh, I think they like it that way. Hmm. Yeah, that lack of accountability as well being a theme of these oil majors. Um, but we could, that could become its ho- a whole conversation, I'm sure. But um, to get into the report, you know, um, it was the first public report in the UK to actually survey workers and ask for their policy recommendations when it comes to the state of affairs at the moment. Um, it's the first public report where we have actual stories and case studies from frontline oil and gas workers and their personal insights into the industry, their working conditions, and their ideas for a way forward. Um, so I wonder if you could explain a little bit about why you felt that report was necessary, uh, how you engage with the workers, and what the importance of this kind of worker-led approach is when it comes to just transition. Yeah, I mean, the, I think we've seen, so we know some of the offshore trade unions like Unite um, and RMT, have done surveys of their members before uh, to hear about specific issues or, or the status of specific workers. And I think, I guess what was a bit different about this was um, that the three organisations involved, Friends of the Earth, Scotland, Platform and Greenpeace are environmental organisations. Um, and we were really trying to present more of a, a broader story than, than any sort of specific contract dispute or one specific term and condition issue or the status of employment it was a bit we were asking what has it been like for you working offshore in the time that you have a lot of people who work offshore have done so for decades often um and then what would you like the future to look like essentially if that was to involve renewables if it was to involve a change of employment like not being offshore anymore what 
what would you want that to look like and how would it work for you? How would you make it work best? Um, which was quite unique, I think. Yes. Um, and I think really why, why we felt the report was necessary is it's partly because of what's not happening in the UK at the minute, which is that despite a growing um, use of just transition as a term from sort of Scottish government and even the UK government to a lesser extent, we're not seeing that play out in the way that we think that demand, that phrase demands. Um, and really just the just and the just transition isn't something that can be applied top down. Yeah. Uh, like inevitably, if you're going to work out what makes something fair to someone, you're going to have to engage with them and talk to them uh, and understand what it is they're worried about, what it is that's at risk, and then what you can do to alleviate that. And I think in the absence of any sort of comprehensive process to make that happen we thought that there was a role there for us because we also talk about the future of that workforce and the future of the offshore oil and gas industry and what it could become that there was there was a role there was a gap to be filled there and it was one that we felt partly responsible for filling too and so um the real motivation for the workforce is to really just i mean particularly around the onset of covid there was such a dramatic impact for people working offshore that like yeah. i think oil and gas really dominated the news for uh, for a good few weeks um not uh, even in the context of covid like the impacts of that were so stark yeah um that it really took up a lot of a lot of headline space and i think we just wanted to understand well beyond barrel prices and beyond this x number of workers losing their job how were people feeling about the future and about the nature of their work and what should happen. Um, and I guess like going, going forward, that, that, that the report has been a first step for us and it's certainly not the end of the process. Like we, we carried out the survey and I think with sort of 1400 responses, we were pretty staggered at the level of engagement. Yes. And so it became worthy of publishing at that. We didn't know whether or not we were gonna get 50 people taking the survey. <laughs> uh, do you know what I mean? We had no idea. So. Once you get that level of numbers, you're thinking, okay, this inf- this kind of this needs to be heard. People need to hear what these workers have told us. Um, and now we're kind of looking to keep building on that because if we're going to keep shaping our policies for a just transition, when we talk about how that can be just for workers, then we will engage with them on it and try and encourage what oil and gas workers to take ownership of the term, essentially to say, when I hear just transition, I demand to be in the room. I demand to you to explain to me what it is you're going to do and to hear me out when I tell you I think that's Absolutely. right or wrong. The, the policies that affect their lives, should they should have totally. some say about it. Yeah, it's a very logical idea, but um, that's why it's um, so staggering that, you know, this is quite a unique approach to actually approach the workers and to, you know, survey their ideas about just transition and in fact one of the most remarkable facts that I thought that came out of that report was that out of the 1300 or so respondents to the survey 91% had never heard of the term just transition before Um, but that's a term that's been used by governments committees and social campaigns since 2017 and it was a union idea originally um, so I just, you know, did that surprise you, that statistic? Because that's something that leaped out or, you know, and what does it reveal about, you know, the discourse about just transition? It definitely leapt out. I think, I think it is one of the biggest, stat, like the, the stat in there that probably jumps out most because it, it is so damning. Like, as you said, it, it seems logical that if it's going to be a just transition, workers will need to be engaged. So the idea that at this stage, 
91% of them don't recognize the term speaks to like a massive failure, really. Um, and I think particularly in Scotland, where we have a just transition commission, um, <laughs> it has a broader remit than oil and gas. But in the context of um, engaging with the public and talking to people who are likely to be affected, that, that statistic is pretty damning about yes. what's been happening. Um, so would I say I was surprised? I don't think so. Um, mm. Because it, it has been a term that's essentially been picked up by the Scottish government um, and other governments as well, off the back of a lot of work by sort of trade unions and the environmental movement as well, um, and broader community campaigns as well. They're picking, mm -hmm. they're, they understand that the just transition applies to them too, and what happens to the different regions and communities in Scotland and the rest of the UK is uh, part of that consideration. I think um, it matters massively because. It's sort of a first, it's not necessarily a first step. I think what we heard throughout the report across all of the questions was that whether or not they understood the term just transition, yeah. oil and gas workers can speak to what it means instantly, if asked. Yes. And that's the big thing. If yeah. asked, oil and gas workers told us that they had solutions for what could happen to make a transition feasible and possible. Um, and they also knew what it was about jobs of the future and the jobs that they have today that were the least satisfactory and what needed to happen. They also had thoughts on whether or not there had been enough support from the local government, from the Scottish government and from the UK government. So in the, the substance of a just transition, like in terms of what it means, the oil and gas workforce absolutely had answers to that. Yes. But it's just interesting that despite so much use of the term by the government, <laughs> that it hasn't filtered through. No. Yes, absolutely. Um, to roll back a little bit, um, the report was very timely as well in that, you know, you were surveying these workers literally in the midst of the pandemic when it was kind of at its worst. Um, so I wondered if you could speak a little bit about, you know, what, what did the pandemic do to frontline oil and gas workers? How did it impact them um, most? Because as we've said, it, it impacted them very heavily. So what, what, did they, um, what did they experience there? The, exper uh, the experience was pretty dramatic and rapid. I think for, for some industries, this obviously happened quite quickly. People in the gig economy, for instance, had pretty immediate impacts. But um, I think for other industries, it was more of a delayed impact as sort of knock-ons happened and the sort of economic consequences started to feed through. But yeah. the nature of employment offshore um, and the way that some of these companies are set up sort of lends itself to a crisis that the offshore oil and gas companies, because they operate within this quite volatile wider global market yeah yeah means that they understand and are ready to move at the click of a finger if right. they need to if something changes they'd set themselves up to make sure that's possible as much as they can it just so happens in the uk they're more able to set themselves up for that so the impact of workers is much quicker and much worse than it might be in a country like norway for instance yeah. um but what we saw pretty quickly was the companies recognizing that the for safety reasons, to ensure the spread of the virus didn't happen on rigs, they cut the workforce. But that also coincided with the huge drop in oil demand, right. where actually less demand for the products. And I sort of mentioned the dominant headlines fairly early on in the pandemic now, um, where they were 
negative oil prices in America for the first time, like record low barrel prices, um, and really just the production slowed. And that also required less and less workers. Um, so the impact was dramatic. And I think we asked the question in the survey of whether or not um, the people responding had been furloughed or made redundant since the start of the pandemic. And the answer was about 45%, sort of approaching 50, um, had been since March last year. Wow. Yeah. And then more broadly asked, how would you rate the scale of the impact on a, from zero to 10 of the pandemic? And I think we've landed at about nine out of 10, yeah. which is pretty, yeah, which is stark in itself. But basically over half of the workforce being made furloughed, uh, being put on furlough and redundant is a, a huge figure in itself. I think the total, the last projection in Oil and Gas UK, the industry lobby group, um, was that there was 30,000 workers offshore in 2018 um, directly employed there. So you're talking about 15,000 people potentially if you sort of extrapolate those numbers upwards. An incredible, That's huge. Yeah, yeah. An incredible amount. And it's almost an invisible industry that we don't talk about because it's been so the focus during the pandemic. It's definitely been on hospitality and uh, other frontline essential workers, supermarkets, NHS. But I mean, the oil and gas frontline workers, you know, experienced that immediate layoff and the immediate impacts of uh, drop in oil prices and um, lockdown measures. So, yeah, it was yeah. incredible to I see mean, that represented in the report. Yeah, and we, and we one of the things that we heard from the trade unions campaigns early on, um, this wasn't this didn't come through in the report. We didn't have a question about this, but something the trade unions had noticed was that um, actually workers weren't being put on furlough; that they were being made redundant immediately, uh, rather than that sort of. And it wasn't necessarily at any expense to the company, yeah. but it was easier for them. I mean, we're, you're talking purely in an, an administrative sense. Yes, it is less paperwork to just make someone redundant than it would have been for them to furlough them and to do the maintenance of that. But it's because they're able, they know quite comfortably that when, if the time comes that they want to hire more people, they can yeah. just dip back in and people will be looking for that work because so many of them have been made redundant. Um, and it's, it's a really twisted uh, way to have approached it. And, and quite incredible seeing as our economy is so fueled by, you know, oil, fossil fuels, that this is such a precarious industry with no safety nets really put in place by our own governments for these workers. You know, they were just um, at the mercy of these contractors and these companies. Yeah, um, incredible. And that industry, it seems, is subject to precarious job security to begin with i mean you said you mentioned they're subject to that kind of boom and bust cycle um of just you know being subject to whatever the oil prices are and that i think was pretty bad before the pandemic even kicked off as well there was some sort of oil price war going on um, so what did the workers say about job security was that something that they really focused on in the report and in, in the survey did they comment quite a lot on that yeah, I mean, it's, may it's maybe worth explaining a little bit about the, the sort of global price wars context to, to try and just paint a bit of the picture of why it's such a volatile industry globally. Sure, yeah. I mean, essentially, the, the, there's, a, there's, a, there's an organization called OPEC, um, which are the largest or a, a, a collection of oil and gas producing countries who um, set have done in the past set agreements with one another about limiting the production of oil and gas in order to create an artificially stable price 
Right. So you set an agreement, you all agree not to overproduce or to produce too much. So a country like Russia, for instance, mm-hmm. doesn't dip into very deep reserves rapidly and drop the price um, or the same for Saudi Arabia. Um, and then everyone across the board then is dealing with a price that sets much more stably for a period of time. And, and what happened around March, April last year was that the last agreement was coming to an end. Ah, right. Uh, so right in the middle of the pan, right at the beginning, the onset of the pandemic and, and Britain, at least the this, this agreement was coming to an end and Russia and Saudi Arabia essentially decided they didn't want to sign a new one. And so began a period of really rapid overproduction which completely dropped the price wow. of oil and gas because it's an artificial price doubled down on by the impacts of the pandemic. Um, and it just, the nature of that agreement and how those countries sit together, like it, it's difficult to look at even the price of a barrel now without thinking about that context, that this is essentially the price that's set artificially by countries deliberately limiting their supply. Um, but that's just a bit of context. I think the, the question you were asking sort of about the job, the precariousness of the work. Yes. One of the things that when we were talking to some of the workers, we, we obviously we had the survey and then we spent a lot of time phoning some of the workers around to just sort of get a bit more detail about specific aspects of things they said and so that we could understand it. I mean, that's a big part of this. There's so much about offshore oil and gas that I don't understand because I've never worked offshore. Absolutely. Um, And actually the way to understand that is to speak to people who have. Um, And when you get a figure about job security being the biggest concern for people in offshore oil and gas, well, understanding why that is was really important. And that's what we did through the phone calls. And I think, People were really willing to talk because, as I said, kind of initially, like a lot of them have worked offshore for decades. Yeah, and yeah. it was a really exciting industry to enter as the promise of mm. a really decent living. I think that's still the way a lot of people view offshore oil and gas is it's this promise of yeah. um, riches, essentially. And it, it yeah. just isn't the case anymore because of how precarious the work is. And yeah. what's happened is rather than being permanently employed by a company, Uh, in the way that most people are they have been largely pushed to become self-employed so an offshore worker will set set themselves up as a business even though they are an individual yeah and often going through a recruitment agency they will be employed by a company uh, who wants them to go offshore using their business so an offshore oil and gas company pays the self-employed business and then that person pays themselves from the business funds. It's a little bit, um, it's a little bit confusing. It's, it's difficult to understand why you wouldn't just have someone on standard payroll. Um, but uh, it's less difficult to understand when you look at it from the oil and gas company's perspective because it gives them the opportunity to avoid uh, having to go through normal uh, employment law processes and uh, giving people proper employment rights. So you can let someone go really quickly because they're a business providing a service, not an employee. And you can just say, we no longer need that service. And you don't really need to give any notice. You don't really need to go through any process to say why you no longer need that service because it's a business, business to business rather than business to employer. And so what we heard from some of the workers was that maybe 20, 30 years ago, you had 75% of people working offshore being employees so they were registered with the company, they were getting, they were paying their tax through that company, they had all the sort of employment rights that they should have done, and 25% of people being contractors. Uh-huh. And that, some, for some people, the contractor relationship works quite well, yeah. because they want the flexibility of choosing when they go offshore and when they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we've seen over that time, 
what we heard at least was that that relationship has probably changed now so that 75% of people offshore are contractors and only 25% are employees. Yeah. So what that means is you could have a reg that's operating with three quarters of the workforce as contractors who can be let go at the drop of a hat. Yes. And so when a crisis like this comes around, that's exactly what can happen and what did happen, really. Yeah. And so that, yeah. introduces a, a real precarity into the work because now that company isn't obliged to pay anything like your benefits or any sort of redundancy package because you are this contracted self-employed business is that right yeah entirely yeah yeah gosh and i suppose that has a lot of knock-on effects as well when it comes to i mean in the report people were talking about their attempts to individually transition about you know trying to they would they want to transition you know, that was another thing that came out of the report. There's, it said 82% said that they would consider moving to a job outside of the oil and gas industry. And they said they wanted to work in renewable industries and in decommissioning oil rigs and uh, a bunch of other low carbon sectors. Um, so they clearly expressed this desire for a just transition. But because a lot of them were contractors, it seemed that they had to pay stuff like training fees um, all by them, like by themselves off their own back. And there was no funds or any sort of um, money available to aid them in the transition. Um, so what I mean, what other barriers are inhibiting this? If there's such a desire to transition, you know, what what are the main difficulties that they're facing when, when they're attempting to do this and being left individually? transition that the issue of training was far and away the biggest one that came up um, it was mentioned the most in written comments to the survey uh, and it was mentioned most over the phone and that like, it's exactly that dynamic you mentioned if you're not an employee if you're self-employed then the training costs are on you to pay mm -hmm. um, and some of these are it, it, just unbelievably expensive several thousands of pounds Sometimes, And what we did here as well was that certain training companies uh, ever so slightly changing the nature of a training course in order to make oh. it so that someone's contract uh, certificate is out of date. So you add a new day to a five-day training course. You don't offer people a way to uh, take the extra day. You make them have to do the whole course again. Wow. And all of a sudden, you've got someone paying several thousand pounds to go and repeat a training course that they already know. Um, There's no one of the most in that. No justice in that. And it, it, just, it just puts people off and makes it more and more difficult. Uh, what we also heard was that you had people who would have their, their tickets. People offshore call them your tickets, basically. You wave them to show that you can go offshore, your health and safety and things like that, your safety offshore and all the rest right, of it. And we heard about people who were hired by companies to go offshore on a contract up until the end of their ticket. And they would then, at the end of that, be let go because <laughs> the company had no interest in paying them through the tickets. And so they would then, that would their employment then, even though it was well known that that was going to happen, that they were going to need to go through it. You know, it's, um, wow. yeah, it's really poor. And then what we also heard was that for those people who had already been looking at moving in other industries or had had a look at potentially an offshore wind decommissioning as well, like other sort of diving work as well, they were going on safety courses, which, I mean, I, an example that one of the workers gave us, someone who'd worked offshore for 25 years plus, uh -huh. um, getting in a helicopter at least <laughs> how, uh, however often, right? <laughs> and they went to an offshore training course and day one was 
safety in a helicopter. Oh my god! And they had to go through a training course where they were uh, told how to get in and out of a helicopter, what to do if a helicopter crashes, um, and all the rest of it. And that person paid again thousands of pounds wow. in order to go sit through a course for something that they had that they already had certification for from going offshore oil and gas because the two training systems aren't aligned with one another. That's incredible. Um, so it's really just a great way for these training companies to extract a wee bit extra money from each of these people. Not even a wee bit extra money, quite a lot of extra money. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and uh, exploiting that job precarity as well, it sounds like. Um, absolutely necessary for government intervention, it would seem, in, in this regard. Uh, but we'll get to that in a wee second, because there's another issue that they talked about in the report, which seems to be quite prevalent in the oil and gas industry, which is issues around health and safety. Uh, they were discussed in some detail. Um, so I wanted to ask you, what's the history there? And can you talk about what the report revealed about health and safety conditions, either during the pandemic or even before? Yeah, it's a, it's a long a long history for sure. I mentioned Piper Alpha earlier. There were some fairly big changes after the Piper Alpha disaster. Yeah. As an aside, it's worth reminding ourselves what Piper Alpha refers to. Piper Alpha was an oil platform located in the North Sea around 120 miles northeast of Aberdeen, operated by Occidental Petroleum. On the 6th of July 1988, an explosion followed by four days of fires destroyed the platform, killing 167 men, including two crewmen of a rescue vessel. There were only 61 survivors, and 30 bodies were never recovered. The accident remains the worst offshore oil disaster in terms of lives lost and industry impact. Because so much of the evidence was destroyed or lost at the bottom of the sea, it was difficult to piece together the story of how and why the explosion happened. Most relevant in this context, however, was that the public inquiry laid partial blame on both poor monitoring and the safety culture on offshore rigs, where complacency overruled due diligence. Which meant that there was a new sort of health and safety executive that was tasked with making sure standards were up to up to date and sort of mm -hmm. spot checks, things like that. Um, usually they have to pre-announce that they're coming in, which is always a bit of a, bit of a giveaway about how robust that regime is. <laughs> but I think um, the what's happened recently, uh, well, in the context of the report, we asked people to rate their sort of satisfaction or comfort with health and safety on a scale of zero to five. Mm -hmm. The answer was pretty um, meddling, sort of three to three and a half. And it... It shocked us because that was quite, we thought that was quite high because mm. we read the comments that came with the questions, which was essentially a litany of near misses. Right. Osher workers talking about things that seemed to us reading them to be quite frankly terrifying, yeah. given how um, dangerous the offshore rigs are. Um, but then sort of concluding that they were generally satisfied with the health and safety. Mm -hmm. So you're... The balance we had was, okay, we need to reflect that actually people have ranked this fairly highly, but we can't ignore what is a really dangerous track record that each of these workers is identifying, or a huge number of these workers is identifying as kind of inherent in their work. Right. And so the, the, the conclusion I ended up walking away with was that the risks and uh, those near misses had kind of become part of the job. Yeah, normalised. 
yeah, it just been completely normalised that maybe some days safety checks weren't taking place, um, and maybe some days there was a, a bit of a flare here and there, and <laughs> yeah. just got very quickly filled. It, mm-hmm. It's worrying because well, I mean we, we feature a bit of a an interview with um, Jake Malloy, who's the regional organiser for the RMT, responsible for offshore workers um and he used to work offshore as well and we've got a bit of a profile of jake in the report because he can talk to some of that experience as well from a bit of a broader view yes and in in those conversations he was talking quite a lot like about the way that piper alpha happened having sort of been under the radar for so long and then there was so much attention and where has that attention gone now so if you lose 50 50 percent of the workforce are furloughed or redundant what health and safety checks are happening offshore. Hmm. And I think one of the things, an example that one of the workers told us was that on a ship where, on a ship, on a rig, where you're checking 20 valves that need to be looked at for leaks, you would usually check every every valve in a day or however often. Sure, sure. What they'd done because there was too few of them was that they would check one a day, a different one. And if one of them was fine, it was concluded that all of them would be fine. My goodness. And so you moved on. And you just think that it's, it's just such a terrifying prospect. They're dealing with such um, volatile material yeah. um, that not having just the most robust health and safety standards. And if there's not enough workers to carry out the work, then it needs to stop. Yes. Really. Mm-hmm. But the, there's, there's a relatively high cost involved in stopping production. Mm-hmm. Uh, which they'd rather maintain a low production than stop production entirely, essentially. So, um, yeah, a lot of the stories we heard were were really worrying, and I think I was also quite concerned about that normalisation, really. Absolutely, yeah, and it's more disconcerting as I just um, watched for the first time Chernobyl, <laughs> that HBO drama, which yeah. uh, there's we seem to make disaster movies about these great engineering rigs and then they're just malfunctioned due to basically a lack of health and safety checks. You know, Deepwater Horizon was another movie that just showed the exact same scenario, and uh, it's like the writing's on the wall there, um, but. Uh, the normalization is concerning i agree with you for sure i mean uh, i think perhaps maybe there's an idea of um we don't know what a five-star health and safety rig perhaps looks like and one of the things that i which leaped out at me in the report was there was a small comparison between conditions for workers on uk rigs and conditions for workers on norwegian oil rigs Um, And that was quite startling to me because there was rigs that weren't even 20 miles apart. But the difference in like just, um, you know, in job guarantees and pay guarantees, negotiable hours, you know, Norwegian workers only staying two weeks on the rig rather than three. um, And having a private cabin even just for a basic level of human comfort. Um, but the conditions were so different between these rigs, which were operating on the same on the same water. Uh, so I just wondered, you know, what conditions, what enables the conditions to be so much worse on these UK oil rigs, and um, what can be done about it? And are there any other lessons from Norway <laughs> when it comes to our energy sector and how we govern it? The one, the one big difference really is that the Norwegian trade unions are tasked with negotiating a sector-wide set of terms and conditions for people mm-hmm. working offshore. So Organized. if you want to operate offshore in the Norwegian uh, North Sea, you have to align your employment 
rights with what the trade unions have collectively negotiated between the governments and representatives of the industry. That's the big difference, yes. really. Um, essentially, what we have in the UK is a framework that has been completely driven between successive governments and the offshore oil and gas industry, which is an incredibly powerful lobby. <laughs> and so things like a big, a big change, for instance, would be shift pattern changes. So going from three weeks on, three weeks off to four weeks on, two weeks off for mm. the same pay. That's mm. a huge amount of extra work across the course of a year for the same pay. Yeah. Um, and it's also incredibly dangerous for people's health and their attention spans and their ability to rest and recuperate. It's oh, yeah. a really oh. demanding job. Yeah. Yeah. And I, th- I mean, that, that's the big difference. And I think that's sector-wide collective bargaining would have a huge impact on um, the offshore oil and gas sector. And I, I would encourage that in the context of energy broadly, that's offshore oil and gas. And it should also be offshore wind, onshore wind, any sort of renewables. I think I read yesterday that there's a, an offshore wind company looking to kind of take in some of the same fire and rehire tactics that British Gas are trying to do with their engineers. Yeah. Um, and that, that sort of thing needs to stop Yes, And there needs to be a, a minimum floor that trade unions representing their workers are able to negotiate and that then they can reach above and look for better standards. Because at the minute, when there are so many offshore workers on such precarious contracts, it's a total race to the bottom. If you mm-hmm. want that employment, you're going to have to accept worsening terms and conditions because it's the employers that are in total control. Um, and that's that's the huge difference, really, is who's got the power in that relationship and in Norway, the trade unions sit at the table and negotiate on the terms and conditions. And in the UK, they have to fight to be able to access those conversations. Yes, yes, a dangerous situation. And um, another consequence of the free market, just unregulated in that respect. You know, a race to the bottom, as you say, you know, yeah. paints a very grim picture. Um, and, and what perhaps related to this is the respondents were asked to rate their confidence in local Scottish and UK government uh, on the same scale of one to five. And um, what they came back with was 1.7. So they were more content with the health and safety regulations on their rigs than they were with any government response or attention to their industry. Um, And what do you think? I mean, that's a damning assessment from frontline oil and gas workers. Um, and why do you think the confidence is so low? Um, I mean, what have the Scottish and UK governments done to outreach to these workers and to provide for their needs um, and to provide any semblance of a just transition? I mean, the, the, the things that the Scottish and UK government have done are largely, like going back to kind of what we were talking about for the last question, are largely driven by industry representatives. So yeah. the chief execs or Oil and Gas UK's head of workforce, whatever they call themselves, mm-hmm. will be in conversations with the remit of representing the workforce. And there will be some space for trade unions to come in there, but nowhere near enough. Yes. So what you end up with is largely policy shaped by people who are not representing the workforce because mm-hmm. the trade unions get so little of the, the access and the, um, the space to make those demands. And I think that that really is why confidence is that low because the offshore oil and gas workforce aren't being heard. Yeah. I mean, worse than that, they're not being asked, essentially. Yes. That's the challenge. So you would have no confidence because nothing really coming has been intended to change what is your kind of lived reality. So the mm-hmm. government, just the UK government just now, for instance, is going through a process of 
negotiating a North Sea, trans North sea transition sector deal. The negotiating for that is largely happening between the UK government at Westminster and um, oil and gas companies and the trade body. Right. With, again, some involvement of trade unions and right. a bit of consultation with the wider wider stakeholders like environmental movement even. And yeah. it just speaks to an unwillingness really to recognise what people are facing and a belief that you can continue to do that to people really. A belief that you can continue to ignore that, force people to live in that way on that kind of precarious contracts, on those kind of precarious contracts without any sort of consequence mm -hmm. really. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I wasn't necessarily surprised to see confidence that low. I think maybe I was a bit surprised that it was so consistently low across like local government, the Scottish government and the UK government. You'd maybe think maybe someone had done something positive that people thought that was good news. But actually the reality was people were just sort of saying, I have been dealing with issues like this for decades. This has been a gradual worsening of terms and conditions. And mm -hmm. none of those like seats of power really yeah. have thought to take a big interest and to demand that something changes. Um, yeah. And well, that, that that's what you get. Essentially you get people that just have no confidence that um, there will be positive change coming or that they have any interest in making that happen yeah no i think that speaks powerfully to that and just the the lack of a seat at the table when it comes to talking about their own livelihoods and their own futures which yeah. they've vested so much in um and the importance of a worker-led just transition it seems like just transition just isn't possible if it isn't worker-led because transition will happen um but a just one won't necessarily um, and I, unless it's worker led I feel like that came out very strongly in the report um, and so what were some of the key solutions that these workers sort of proposed to deal with the issues of job precarity and transitioning and health and safety and government response you know what were some of the key recommendations that came out of that report yeah one of the questions we asked was um, a completely open question what would you do? Yeah. What would you? What do you think needs to happen to make a transition possible? What would What would need to be put in place? And I mean, the way we we represented that in the report was just with a sort of big map of everything that had been said, all the yeah. most common words. Um, and we deliberately wanted to represent it in that way to show the breadth of comment. Mm. And and I mean, we asked that question so we could see well, what what would what would these offshore oil and gas workers want to see happen? And pretty blown away that, I mean, basically every worker had something to say, that they, they all had solutions. They were sitting on a wealth of, again, decades potentially of knowledge that they'd built up untapped. offshore. Yeah, untapped, completely untapped. And the reality is if you want to go from offshore oil and gas to offshore oil and wind, or if you want to do decommissioning, there's a group of people who have the skills to make that happen. And they're not being asked essentially by the government <laughs> what needs to happen. And it, I mean, it's staggering, really. It? Yeah. And it's something that's, that's important that you mentioned worker-led just transition. Like that's a, that's a, that's the right, the right thing to do for a just transition. But in a really practical sense, it is the only way yeah. that a transition at a really rapid pace, because of the climate crisis, crisis can actually happen. Because mm -hmm. you're going to need those skills, that knowledge, to really practically deliver on it. Mm -hmm. And to leave it so untapped is just unbelievable. And I, I think one of the, I already mentioned that really retraining was the big one. Like an understanding of 
the need for bespoke programs, understand right. what skills I have, what skills I need, and then pathways too. So we sort of heard that if you were an offshore oil and gas worker, for instance, you could go on job sites, go and look for something and for every 20 oil and gas jobs, you might see one in renewables. Um, really the opportunities weren't there. The jobs were all still in offshore oil and gas and that lack of um, pathway to make it possible for someone to say, okay, I've decided I want to go and do something else or I want to go offshore for a different purpose. Um, really isn't there. There isn't that joined up thinking. And so a lot of what we heard was the need for retraining, the need for proper funding of that training, the need for better regulation, really, to ensure that people, companies receiving money are guaranteeing that there will be um, a retention of jobs, at least, if not yeah. the creation of more jobs, the use of domestic supply chains to increase those opportunities as well. And that's that's really a huge part of it. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of understanding of exactly how this unregulated offshore oil and gas sector had become quite so poor for the workers and they knew exactly what needed to come mm -hmm. to fix it, really. Yeah, yeah, I bet. And the confidence being very low. I mean, you talked about it in the first podcast episode about the BIFAB scandal. And it's like, how can you have confidence in a government that's going to deliver you a just transition when you've got the skills, you've got the desire to go into renewable industries and then the government awards contracts to make wind jackets to, you know, a completely different foreign company um, with terrible work practices. Um, and you just took completely passed over there. Your skills, your expertise, your knowledge, all of that is... Um, is completely. I mean, some, something else that I think, again, I heard from someone speaking about this uh, from a trade union was really that if you're a scaffolder who works on a rig, when you're looking for jobs you're looking for jobs as a scaffolder. You aren't looking for jobs as an oil and gas scaffolder. You're just looking for the work. Your job doesn't necessarily change massively. You might be dealing with different, different infrastructure in front of you, but essentially a lot of these workers have very transferable skills. Yeah. Um, and that includes even some of the onshore staff as well. But if the jobs predominantly are still oil and gas, mm -hmm are still that precarious kind and it hasn't been made very clear to people offshore that there are opportunities elsewhere if there are at mm -hmm. the time mm -hmm. then well that just of course you're just going to keep looking the job sites you were using before yeah going offshore again i know Even it's not it's open not, to going elsewhere yeah and they were more than open to go elsewhere it's not like there was this invisible allegiance to the oil and gas industry that they wanted totally. to keep working for them it was like i would love to contribute to you know ethical clean industries that you know had good practices and good well-being and were contributing to rolling back the climate crisis you know i'd be happy to train and work in those industries yeah um, and I, think, I mean i think the biggest more of error we've seen for sure was if you can if there is a job going that offers me job security and decent pay then yeah that's the one and that I, I, like that that's not difficult to comprehend because I think it's the way pretty much anyone would look at applying for a new job. And so like, we, we, we ask people, not only would you consider leaving, but what would be your main, what would be your main priority in looking for something else? And that's where people told us that job security, again, yes. similar to how it was their biggest concern about their current employment, that would be the main priority. And again, the other thing, a couple of the other things we asked then told us what wasn't a big deal. And so we asked whether or not the location of the work was a big deal in it. Mm -hmm. I think only 2% of people put that as their, their yeah. first priority like nice actually, it's a workforce that's really used to traveling around and mm -hmm. um being in different places and they 
necessarily bothered by that, which is again interesting, but it's comes back down to what is the nature of the work? Yes. Is it going to be the same kind of precarious contracts led by the same types of companies in a completely unregulated market? Yeah. Or are my skills respected, my knowledge valued, and me and am I on a permanent decent contract that gives me security for the future? And that seems totally fair enough to me. I can agree with that. And right at the end of the survey, um, the report says, you know, we invite government secretaries, ministers, parliamentary committees and public bodies to begin and further this process of participatory policymaking by meeting with this survey's pool of respondents. And I loved that as a conclusion. I thought that that was an excellent demand. So I wanted to ask you, did that happen yet? I know we're in the middle of a pandemic, but if not, are you, are you hopeful that it will? Yep, I'm hopeful. We are in the middle of organising a few of them. So we sent that request to not only the energy secretaries of both the Scottish and UK governments, but some of their relevant kind of bodies and agencies. So the Just Transition Commission, for instance, or the Committee right. on Climate Change. Um, we are in the midst of organising a few of those, although I'm not sure yet whether or not that's going to happen with the Scottish and UK government energy ministers, which would be a shame. Yes. Um, but I mean... the. Essentially, what that request was about was, if you were to read this report, there's a general encouragement for the government to do this, to do this work, to engage in this work too, to, to occupy some of this space. And I think what we basically said was, you don't even have to do any of the work that mm -hmm. was involved in making the survey or reaching out to people and having the deeper conversations and writing the report. We will, we will talk to the workers, see who wants to come and speak with you and organize a meeting we won't say anything we'll just sit there we'll just we'll just facilitate a meeting happening and i think it's pretty outrageous <laughs> the people that we've sent that request to can't even stretch themselves to coming along for an hour to hear from and listen to and take that on board and so we continue to wait and see what will happen with all of those requests yeah fingers crossed and i feel like the ball is firmly in their court now after this report got published and i'm very glad that at least 13 1383 of these frontline workers actually had a voice and experienced you know someone asked them what they they wanted um and how their experience was so yeah no we'll, we will wait and see what the government and parliamentary committee response is yeah. to that but yeah and you might but, hear you might hear about it if they don't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, there has to be some accountability somewhere in the whole North Sea. Yeah. Let's go. Um, so, yeah, that's us um, for today, I think. Um, but I know that this collaboration has recently just produced a new report published this month um, about carbon capture technology. So uh, we're going to definitely get someone on the podcast to talk about that in the coming months. But I wondered if you could give us just a sneak preview, um, just maybe what your method was or what kind of uh, interesting results came from that. Yeah, it's a, it's a slightly different a group of people so we wrote and worked on the offshore report and are continuing to work on the offshore report with um greenpeace and platform mm -hmm. but kind of towards the end of last year we were working with uh, an organization called global witness on some research into carbon capture and storage technology and whether or not it was a, a essentially whether or not it was a realistic solution to the climate crisis mm -hmm. um, and the way we went about doing the ccs research was by commissioning some work from the Tyndall Centre, who are part of the University of Manchester, a, a climate change research unit, 
um, to look at some of the really key questions. So what has development of CCS been so far? Um, what are the projections? How has the technology met up to previous projections, if it has at all? Um, <laughs> what are some of the barriers in terms of cost and time scales? Mm -hmm. And then really in the context of the climate crisis, what does that mean for carbon budgets and whether or not we can meet targets? Um, and so basically what the report said was that when it comes to energy and a lot of the, the context of carbon capture and storage and energy is with blue hydrogen, mm -hmm. where you use the technology to capture um, the emissions released in the process of turning gas into hydrogen, yes. or getting hydrogen from gas, sure. basically. Um, and it's considered that that's a, a low carbon technology because, well, the CCS will scoop up all the emissions. <laughs> and it, it, I mean, it's a total fallacy, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but it's a fallacy that lets governments continue to press the idea that oil and gas extraction is going to continue forever. Yeah. because it gives the impression that there are ways to clean it up. And what the report pretty clearly shows is that that technology doesn't work to 100% effectiveness, isn't proven to do so at scale, is actually very unreliable with a huge history of over-promising and ultimately under-delivering, but that kind of more pressingly in the context of the climate crisis and what we know of the, the importance of the next decade if we're to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees, is that CCS in the energy sector cannot be expected to play a significant role until at least the 2030s. Hmm. And what that means is that essentially every piece of government policy that says CCS is part of the solution to stop yes. the climate crisis is kind of talking in nonsense because... It's a red herring. It's a total red herring. And if the crucial action needs to be in the next decade... And CCS isn't going to be able to play a big role in that in the energy sector, then we're kind of misdirecting, looking at the wrong way as we waste a lot of time yes. on the other things that could be happening. And it's, um, I mean, we're, we're still to do a lot of the promotion around that to really kind of put it in front of the people who are currently setting us up to rely on CCS. But it's, yeah. Um, yeah. in the context of 1.5 in particular, it's not pretty. No, no, but very important research. You know, I look forward to reading that because, again, it's just talking about another way to dodge accountability, direct accountability to workers and to transition to these renewable industries. It just seems to me like another way of justifying new explorations to try and invest more capital into new oil rigs that are just going to continue forever, like you say. So yeah no i'm we're gonna definitely cover that report in the future but um thanks for joining us today ryan that was fascinating um no thanks for having me um it was good to be able to talk about offshore i think if people are interested in reading more about it and what what friends of the air scotland and platform and greenpeace are planning to do next really then i think you can find out more information on the just transition pages of our website we're certainly not done with this engagement with the workforce it'll be continuing from here and hopefully build up even more demands and even more power for a worker-led transition with the, the environmental movement can get behind. Absolutely. It's such a huge first step. Cool. All right. Thanks, Ryan. Great. Thanks. This podcast was brought to you by Young Friends of the Earth Scotland, a network of young activists fighting for climate and social justice. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.